Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. These programs are just one of several free services we provide to disseminate information about training for mountain sports. If you like what you hear and want more, please check out our website, uphillathlete.com, where you'll find many articles and our extensive video library on all aspects of training for and accomplishing a variety of mountain goals. You'll also find our forum where you can ask questions of our experts and the community at large. Our email is coach at uphillathlete.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Welcome, everyone. My name is Steve House, and I'm here today with Scott Johnston to talk about the genesis of Uphill Athlete. How are you today, Scott? I'm doing great, Steve. Um, we thought it would be a good idea to put this information out there to let people kind of the backstory of how Uphill Athlete got going and Steve's and my relationship and how... Um, how we've worked together all these years, and um, make it a public thing rather than something that gets passed around by by word of mouth. Um, by the way, we are the co-founders of Uphill Athlete. We started this yeah. this venture, which you'll hear more about here in a few seconds. Um, but yeah, thanks everybody for joining us. Our first meeting goes back to the late 90s, uh, where we met through a, a mutual climbing friend of ours, Sean McCabe, uh, at his house, uh, kind of a typical way uh, we meet our friends in the community. And uh, I, can, I can distinctly remember that that evening. I think Sean was actually kind of excited to, uh, to, to introduce us to each other because I think he, he knew that we were going to hit it off. Yeah, in fact, you know, so I'm substantially older than Steve, and Sean was sort of somewhere between our two ages. But I remember Sean taking me aside. We were on his back deck, and then we were barbecuing something. And um, and he took me aside, and he said, you know, some, this guy is really young, but he climbs like an old guy. And I, he didn't mean that in a derogatory way. <laughs> he, he meant that you climbed with kind of old-school ethics and old school, you know, kind of alpinist mentality. Um, so he was, that was, and for Sean, that was not one of the highest forms of compliment that he could pay somebody, I think. Um, and that was, that's, we struck up this um, friendship and climbing partnership and that lasted, well, still going today. But we, for a number of years, we were regular climbing and ski, you know, ski touring partners, um, probably spending, I mean, a huge amount of time together and talking about training. And um, at that time, I, I certainly was not coaching Steve at that point. And, um, but we would, he would often query me on training ideas. You know, how do you do this? Or why is that done that way? And you know, he knew about my training background. He knew about my coaching background. And I would offer some input to him on some of these things. But it was really just you know conversational it wasn't a coach athlete relationship but but then it turned into something bigger and different later didn't it it sure did uh, a little bit of background to to kind of rehash some of that ground is you know at the time we met i was in my uh probably 27 or so maybe 26 um at this time in the 90s you know there was there were about three professional climbers in the United States, and that was Alex Lowe and, and Conrad Inger and, and um, Greg Childs, probably of the, of the North Face team at that time. And that was basically it. And I was working as a mountain guide. Um, there was no, the whole 
people today would have a hard time recognizing the sort of climbing landscape of the 90s. There were really no sponsored athletes. There were certainly no rock climbers that were sponsored or alpinist. And um, a few expedition climbers, such as Reinhold Mesner, had, had broken through to kind of be able to fund and, and make a living off of their trips and so forth. But it was, you could count them on one hand, um, literally. <laughs> and so uh, right around uh, 99, I got the opportunity to start working as, a, as an ambassador for, for Patagonia. And at that time, I, I was ecstatic because I was making $1,500 a year <laughs> and uh, I, that was that was really like a big deal for me because that was essentially like uh, you know more than ten percent of my annual income. I was living on ten twelve thousand dollars a year trying to climb as much as I could and um, and that freed me up right like that was like that was that was a month or two i didn 't need to work as a mountain guide and I could have more more climbing time so in those late nineties, things started to change for me. Um, and then what happened was that, uh, I hired a, a coach, um, that was not Scott, um, because I was going to these, um, there was a, I was living in the Metal Valley at that time, uh, where Scott lived, uh, lives now, um, in, in up to state Washington, North central Washington. And, uh, I was starting to go to these uh, training kind of group that was run through the Nordic club, the Nordic skiing club. And through that, I met uh, this, this woman there that was a Nordic ski coach. She was Canadian and uh, she had a master's in physiology and she'd done some coaching and um, she and I became friends and I asked her to coach me. And so she started writing training plans and uh maybe scott maybe i should let you uh, explain how that how that ended up um if we fast forward about that was probably when she started laying out plans for me i guess it was it was i don't remember i could look at my journals it's, it was probably say september um i think it was was it 1999 i think i think it was yeah it was in the fall i remember that and um I didn't really, I didn't scrutinize them at all. I, I wasn't, you know, this was none of my business and you know, this is whatever you wanted to do. And, um, but I, I ended up kind of picking up the pieces after a little while. Uh, wheels did come off and they came off, you know, like all four wheels came off at the same time. And um, you got, Steve got very, very sick um, with, I mean, I really had this crazy high fever. I think in adults, like a fever of 103 is kind of unusual. And I remember you had this fever for 10 days. And um, you, I remember one night you came over here to our house for dinner and you literally sat on the couch with, you know, like I, maybe we even put a sleeping bag around you or a blanket or, you know, you were just sitting there shivering and you, know, you looked terrible. Luckily, one of the people that was here that night, Catherine, was headed to Seattle the next day and she bundled you in the car and drove you to the hospital in Seattle. And they said, you got some yeah, terrible she took virus. took an infectious disease specialist actually. Um, and we stayed, I stayed a couple of days over there and they did a bunch of tests and they never really figured it out what I had because I actually just started to kind of get better on my own. So they stopped testing and they're like, okay, just go rest and see if you continue to get better, which, which I did. But you know, I did get some sort of viral infection. Who knows what I had? But um, but it was a result of overtraining, and it was yeah. a result of 
a coach who was playing. I wasn't, wasn't true coaching. It was more of a, a training plan that was laid out in these different blocks. But it was laid over my work as a, as a mountain guide then. And, and most of that winter, I was working as a heli ski guide. So I was going out. I was getting up at, you know, I had to be at work at 7. So I would get up at 4 and go train in the freezing cold <laughs> in midwinter, on, usually on cross-country skis, you know, come back and still have to be at work by 7. And then I'd be out all day in the cold. Uh, also being exposed a lot to different people because we had new people. I was with new people every single day. So that's probably where the illness came from. And uh, yeah, that, uh, that was my first big lesson in um, how not to train. And I think that's how we, a lot of us learn things is how we learn first how not to do things. And uh, Scott, you, as you know, and we've talked about this uh, between ourselves lots of times, but uh, I, you know, I would have a, a deep uh, debt to Scott who kind of took me aside and, and said, you know, I, I don't think that this is, that she really understands what you're trying to do. She's not a mountaineer. She's not an alpinist. And she doesn't understand your work ethic as um, an individual, as a person. And uh, what, and he started to teach me how to, how to do it right. Yeah, and I want to reemphasize what you just said because I want to make sure people hear this, that the illness that you got was almost undoubtedly caused by overtraining because your immune system was so destroyed because you were physically pretty wrecked. Um, you were so wiped out. You remember when you went to that ice climbing festival in New York and I mean, you were on your last legs when you were there, you know? And so I think that you know, this is the warning we give people all the time, both, you know, we've written extensively about it in both of our books. We've got articles on the website. I, I do, I talk to people on the phone about overtraining all the time because I think it's a really big elephant in the room that people just don't understand. Um, that we only have the capacity to handle a certain amount of work at any given time. And the, the way training is supposed to work is that we gradually improve our capacity to do more work over a long period. But if we throw somebody into a situation where suddenly the workload is much, much higher, the body is not ready. It hasn't adapted to that workload. And it's only response. You know, it'll try to make up the difference for a little while, but you can't be running on the fumes for very long before something serious is likely to happen. <clears throat> and in Steve's case, it was quite serious. Uh, but shortly after, when once he kind of when he, when he did recover from that illness, um, we started to talk more seriously about you know how to train for this uh, for the sport that he was doing. And I was in a fortunate position of having been a climber my whole life, uh, or so, since high school, and having done some high altitude climbing and alpine climbing. You know, not at Steve's level, but but at a fairly high level. And I had trained myself using some techniques that I garnered through my more traditional sports background. And my traditional sports background, and I want Steve to talk a little bit about his background as well, but I'll be very brief here that I, you know, I, I was a swimmer all through high school, and I swam at a very high level, and I was part of an Olympic development program living in Colorado Springs at the Olympic Development Center, or the Olympic Training Center, excuse me, and um, was pretty much all I did was eat, sleep, train. And I was, but I was exposed to some very high level coaching at that time and testing and all that. And I began to, even as a kid, getting kind of curious, like, why are we doing this? Or how do we do it that way? And then I swam um, on a, 
at a Division I school on a, on a full ride scholarship and through college. And during which time we happened to share the locker room with the cross country ski team. And I looked at these skis and I thought, you know, and I thought that sounds like kind of a fun thing to do. And I got at that time that the University of Colorado was kind of the dominant team. That's where I was in school. They were the dominant skiers in the country. There were a bunch of Norwegians that they'd imported, brought over to, to race for them. And I had them take me out skiing. And I went, whoa, this beats the hell out of looking at the lane lines in the bottom of a pool for five hours a day. And so I immediately got hooked on cross-country skiing. And um, I think my athletic background and my training background, the two, those two sports demand a lot of, of training discipline. So I fit right in. And um, but I, so again, during my, my career as a cross country skier, which was um, not that exemplary, I did manage to ski on the World Cup a little bit, uh, but I didn't have a particularly great um, career of it. But again, I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of coaching philosophies and training methodologies. And I began to question coaches and say, well, why is it we do that? And what I was surprised by was that I found that a lot of people just didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. They were doing it that way because somebody else did it that way or they had done it that way when they were an athlete. And I began to think that there must be more to this. So I started reading and researching and found that actually there's a whole science and um, theory of, of training methodologies out there. And so uh, I kind of dug into that stuff. So when I got together, well, excuse me, back when I was training for some fairly significant climbs of, in, that are significant to me, um, climbs, I started to implement some of the training ideas that I'd garnered from swimming and ski racing, but adapting them to this sport of mountaineering, alpinism, that sort of thing. So when I began to work with, and they'd worked with, those training methods worked amazingly well. Whenever I, whenever I would go on a climbing trip or an expedition, I'd, turn, I'd be the fittest guy on the, trip, on the team because I was the only one doing this kind of stuff. Other people just went climbing and nobody was doing any kind of training. So when, I, when Steve and I started to talk seriously about um, my helping him with his training, um, what I was able to do is say, hey, you know something? I've done it this way and it worked really, really well. So let's try this with you. And so then I had this, you know, sort of a guinea pig, as it were, and we, we could experiment, but I could, we could experiment within some fairly narrow parameters because by that time I, was, I had started to formulate my own theory on why these type of training methodologies worked as well as they did. So I was starting to be able to put them into a little more structured form and um, make it into you know, a kind of a coherent philosophy. Whereas you know, before it was just a bunch of random ideas I had and I would try this and no, that didn't work very well. Um, and then through that experimentation with Steve over a number of years, that process got more and more refined. I got more and more curious about how and why this stuff worked the way it did and began to dig even deeper into the physiology so that I could, um, and I, at that time I also was coaching other young cross-country skiers and I coached a number of them to a very high level Olympic and uh, world championships level. And so I had a high motivation to learn this stuff. Um, so it kind of gave myself a sort of a, a graduate degree in coaching, I guess, during that period. But yeah, so it was, a lot of this was just kind of 
let's try this and see what happens and then try to figure out why it worked and didn't work. Yeah, and I want to kind of uh, step in here to uh, say, you know, and Scott's being very, very humble, you know, I mean, he was, said he was uh, swimming at a high level. You were swimming in the Olympic trials against Mark Spitz. <laughs> right. yeah, that was an unfortunate situation. He, he that was unfortunate that the greatest swimmer in the history of American swimming happened to be in the same race as you did, and, yeah. and you were third, so you didn't get yeah. to go to the Olympics. You yeah, didn't want to take the top two. So, as, I remember uh, those tri- as I remember those trials, 1972 trials, um, Mark won every single event. So that means that he could choose whichever event he wanted to swim. So that's why one of the ways he ended up with seven gold medals was, you know, he had his pick of all those races. So, but it did, yeah. it did definitely make the team a lot smaller. <laughs> it made the team very small, right? And yeah. same thing with, uh, with cross-country skiing. It's not like Kakat was just competing in the, uh, the local 10K, um, you know, where people pass the whiskey bottle around at the start line. It's, <laughs> It's uh, <laughs> competing at a, also at the World Cup level, racing every weekend and on, all, around, all around Europe, uh, again, uh, racing in the Olympic trials and so on. So a so very, very, very impressive high-level athletic career. Unlike me, I mean, I was uh, very um, – and, and, Scott, I think uh, this is something – I'll just go ahead and steal your line here. But, yeah. like, Scott likes to tell people that I have – basically no athletic talent whatsoever. Um, I could not have done uh, any of those things that Scott did athletically. You know, I mean, I, I did uh, participate in tons of sports as a kid, but, you know, like, um, you know, my best 5K time was, you know, just under 18 minutes. Like, I don't remember, 17, some 30 or 17, 40 or something like that. Okay, it's sort of fast, but it's not at all close, anything close to what, like, I mean, I was at a high school with 800 kids, and I was in the third, third fastest guy at the fastest point. So I had no athletic talent, um, and I knew that, and I'm okay with that. I got really into climbing um, partly because I, I just loved, mostly because I just loved being in the mountains. There's a whole other story we can talk about another, another time about how I got into alpinism. And I think I'd like to, like to do that at another time. Um, but uh, this seemed like, I mean, as I was trying to improve myself as a climber, you know, I was, what my natural talent has always been, has been the, the ability to, to focus and to have uh, the mental strength to get through hard pitches and long days and those, those kinds of things. I had that probably somewhat innately. That was, if I had any kind of given talent, that's what it was. The physical side was much less natural for me. And so I recognized that that was my weakness where I could improve the most. And that's, that's why I, I was pursuing that. And I brought in first this other coach, and then I brought Scott in for, um, for a lot of his, uh, expertise later on. So that was, that was, uh, that was really vital. And I like to say, you know, I, um, in my mountaineering career, you know, I had sort of this period through the nineties where I focused mostly on climbing in Alaska and a little bit on climbing in the Canadian Rockies. And then after about, after about this time when Scott and I started working together, um, I started to immediately do some things, um, uh, specifically a climb of a, of a route called the, the um, Infinite Spur on Mount Foraker. Um, and it was one of the biggest, hardest routes in the Alaska range. And 
uh, we, the, the previous fastest time had been seven days and we got to the summit in 25 hours. And then it took us another 20 hours to get down. So we were on the move for 45 hours, more or less nonstop, just brew stops and a little bit of a nap. And um, looking around from up there, it was obvious that I was kind of out of terrain. So I shifted my focus on the Himalaya. And that's really when uh, I started uh, a new career in a lot of ways in terms of mountaineering. Uh, and everything that I did in the Himalaya is almost entirely a result of the training that Scott and I did together. If I had not had that knowledge and that and been able to put into practice the things that, that Scott and I were, were doing together and figuring out, uh, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have climbed anything more than a couple of normal routes. And, um, you know, I would still be working as a mountain guide, and, um, which, which I still do sometimes, but that, I would never have had a professional climbing career. As it was, um, I was able to climb some some quite good routes and and essentially set some, you know, what I would consider in other sports would might be considered sort of world records that are essentially unbroken. I mean, in 2005, when Vince Anderson and I climbed the, the RuPaul face and Nanga Parbat six days, I mean, even now in, in 2020, nobody's ever, no, still nobody's really accomplished anything else like that on an 8,000 meter peak. Um, 15, six later. So um, it's, it's interesting um, that, that uh, uh, that's happened, but I really believe that what we, what we do, what I did is all due to what Scott and I did together at home on the train, on the, in the training. Yeah. And there were no, some of those sessions in my garage, as I remember. <laughs> um, yep. And I think that this brings up a really good point, Steve, that, Often people get um, too fixated on the, the phenomenal physical gifts that some you know, world champions and elite level athletes do possess. There's, and there's no question that you know, someone like Usain Bolt, I mean, that he's a, a one in 10 million, I'm sure, kind of genetically, a bit of a genetic freak. But having now worked certainly with you and with many um, very high-level cross-country skiers, one of the things that I realized through this, this, this process was just, especially in the sports of endurance, um, how important perseverance is. And in fact, I think it's the most important quality, and it can trump genetics. I've seen it actually trump genetics many times. And I believe that, you know, it's, it's too easy for us from time to time to make excuses that, oh, well, I'm, I'm not that gifted. I'm, I, and I, I certainly wasn't gifted as a, what I would call a true athlete. I mean, I failed miserably. The reason I ended up in endurance sports was that I couldn't throw a ball. I couldn't sink, dunk a basket. I couldn't jump over a mm -hmm. hurdle. You know, I couldn't do any of those things that are, are truly demonstrative or, or a gymnastics. You know, I could do a backflip or any of those things. And, and those are things that I call truly athletic. And I think that, that they do have a high genetic component. But when it comes to endurance, I, as I've written in, in the books before, we as a species are predisposed towards endurance. And the main reason people don't excel at endurance is that it just takes a lot of hard, dumb work. You know, hours and hours of time on your feet, moving you know, or, or swimming or whatever it was, <clears throat> or is, and I think that I want to emphasize that 
I have, you know, you got to the level you got, the, your gift of perseverance, your mental toughness and your strengths there were more important. There, I'm sure there were many more athletically talented climbers that you knew and were at, you know, near your level or at your level who never reached your ultimate level um, because they didn't have that, that the drive, the motivation, the, the perseverance. And I've definitely seen that in the sport of cross-country skiing, some of the most supremely talented athletes don't achieve their genetic potentials because they're not, they don't like to work that hard. You know, and whereas the ones oftentimes who have struggled their entire career to make progress, if they stick with it, they don't get injured, they can often rise to an even higher level just because what pays off in, in, with these type of endurance sports is that perseverance and, and volume and years of training. And of course, alpinism has the added complication of being a, a technically really challenging sport with so many components. We've written about this as well with you know, everything from you know, winter camping skills to making sure you don't drop your stove from that ledge to you know, making you know, avalanche decisions about avalanche terrain and building um, anchors. There's just so many things that you can only learn through experience that takes years and years. So I, I think it's a, when we started down this road with this business that we now have, which we're going to talk a little more about soon, how this was kind of an accident, um, what we realized is that you, know, people, they don't, you don't need to be a Usain Bolt. Um, you don't need to be an Adam Andra. Uh, you know, obviously phenomenally talented, gifted people. I mean, they, not that they didn't train very hard as well, but I know from my own experience skiing at the World Cup level and working with athletes who I know were not particularly gifted, we could come, we could nip at the heels of the world's best, even without that genetic gift that, that they probably had. So I think don't sell, I want people not to sell themselves short just because they didn't, you know, choose their parents carefully enough. Um, yeah, and something that you've said that has gotten me out the door for many a, a session is that uh, endurance athletes are made, not born. And uh, we make them, we make it through our own actions. So we're, we're personally responsible for, for our endurance uh, capacities. Um, I, I think that, that, that that's great. I can think of lots of, experience, lots of experiences and lots of stories. Um, you know, there's the, the, the famous story of uh, somebody making fun of uh, the very, very great uh, high-altitude alpinist, uh, Christoph Reliki, who uh, was, you know, on an expedition and somebody was making fun of him because he didn't look particularly fit. They actually thought he looked like a little chubby or something. And he just turned to them and said, I'll see you, see you at 8,000 meters. You know, <laughs> his, his, um, his gift was, was obviously mental toughness and perseverance and being able to stay out and until the job was done. And I think that in, in it, the, the higher altitude you get to, the, the more the, the higher the degree of, of suffering becomes. It just becomes a, a suffer, suffer fast just to stuff a sleeping bag at 8,000 meters. Um, and uh, um, I think that that... But let's fast forward to a particular uh, instance. Like, this is almost 10 years later, actually. So um, I was actually on a... Um, in, in 2009, 
I published a book called Beyond the Mountain, which was stories of my climbing, kind of autobiographical uh, book. Um, and I'd like to talk about that and uh, how that came to be and some of those things in another, another podcast. But um, while I was on the book tour, uh, you know, this was all tr- like, you know, first person autobiographical true stories from my climbing uh, adventures over the previous, you know, 15, 20 years of my life. And, uh, every single time I did, I was going around the country doing a book tour and every single time the first question I would get was, what do you do to train? And I realized after a while that what people wanted was a facile answer. They wanted to say, me to say, oh, I, I ride my mountain bike or I run or they want, they wanted to know what my sort of secret was or whatever. And um, Scott was working with me as my coach this time. And where were you sitting, Scott? We were having a Skype call. Yeah, I, I think this was around 2010. Because I, I believe when we had this Skype call, and you told me, yeah, I'm getting asked all the time, what do you do to train? And you told me that you'd kind of developed this stock one-liner response just because, because you were getting asked that so much. And you, your response was, well, I could tell you, but it would take a whole book. Right. And I was in Norway at that, that winter, um, coaching skiing. I was on the World Cup with some skiers. I wasn't racing myself at that point. I was coaching. And, um, and you, we had a Skype call, and you told me about that. And you said, you know, I really think we should write down what we did. And first, my first response was, who would care? I mean, really, there's, like, like Steve has already said, you could count the number of, of uh, professional climbers on one hand and you could well by then it might have taken two but yeah yeah but you and certainly you could count the number of people that train were climbers that were training um alpinists that were training you know on one hand i mean you and uli steck were probably it um that were really doing some kind of structured training yeah and it wasn't really until a couple of years didn't start until a couple of years later um because we talked about this pretty he and i talked about this quite a bit but anyway yeah so anyway, my thought, my thinking at that time was like, well, who's going to buy this thing we write? <laughs> We're going to spend a lot of time and energy and write this book and nobody's going to care about it because nobody trains for climbing. Climbers just, climbers want to go train, want to go climbing, which is of course, you know, what and we And I think done. that uh, we had come to the conclusion and we were, well, we could do it and we'd run off 500 copies at Kinko's and we'd give them away to our friends. We'd give yeah. them away to whoever did it. Um, and then we actually started a, a, a draft right like we started we made an outline and we started chipping away at it and um we got a good ways into it a, a year or so later and looked at our draft and it was a few hundred pages yeah yeah and, and we and, thought it was going to be 50 i think yes yeah, so we thought it would be stapled together 50 pages yeah and uh didn't turn out that way but you know i and i think that in, so we got a publisher. Patagonia offered to publish the book for us. They'd had good success with Steve's memoir, Beyond the Mountain. And so we had a little bit of a, you know, a foot in the door with them. And it was lucky that we had such great editing help from them because Steve and I didn't really know what we were doing with that book. And if we had people now complain about how thick and heavy that book is, if, it, if, we, if we had had free reign over it, it would be twice as thick. And twice as heavy because we were going to not dense. only include all this training stuff, we were going to talk about, you know, building anchors and techniques and all that kind of thing. 
luckily we got talked down off of that branch of the tree and realized that maybe we just should bite off a little smaller project than than trying to you know like the, write the encyclopedia of alpinism um and i think that turned out well but and we've been surprised that the book has obviously been very successful and very well received and we're thankful that people have found it useful but um you know we literally expected that we would write this book and then go back to our lives. And we don't know because you know, no one or almost no one would even care about it. But shortly after the book was published, we began to, to get, Steve began to get people contact. I didn't have any sort of web presence. I, have an e I had a, a, a website for my, for my climbing, stevehouse.net, still sort of sits there. I don't do much with it, but people started to contact me there. And, and I should also say, just to put things in perspective, I think that the, the first printing was 2,500 copies. So, I mean, even though Patagonia Books was enthusiastic to do it, they, they weren't expecting to, to sell uh, too, too many of them. Yeah. And then uh, we had 1,700 pre-orders on, on Amazon. So they immediately, they ordered a second printing, printing basically before the first printing was even out the door because uh, they could see that there, there was a little more demand than they expected. And that's the way printing is right now, these days with electronic printing, it's so easy to, to print, uh, you know, run off a couple, couple thousand more uh, at the printers than it, than it used to be, so. Yeah, and I think we're probably we're pushing 100,000, somewhere in that range right now of, of that. Yeah, I think book. we're hitting really close to the six figures now. Yeah. Um, this is our book, Training for the New Alpinism, uh, a manual for climber as athlete. And um, the, 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 the title was very uh, deliberate because we were very, um, I think the foundation of what we wanted to create is we wanted climbers to start to think about themselves as athletes. As Scott mentioned earlier, up until this point, climbers of all ilks had just gone climbing to train. They had not really looked at their sport as, uh, as something that they trained for. It was just something they practiced, which has its own value. And there's nothing wrong with people who just want to climb and practice climbing and do that. That's absolutely great. But um, it's, it's a different, it's a mentality shift to think of yourself in, in, in terms of being an athlete and starting to incorporate st strategies to, to increase your level. Yeah, and, and so we have to re reiterate or to extend on what Steve was just saying about because we did not expect the, we had no um, intention of starting any kind of a business around this book. We had hoped that people would be able to read the book and learn what we did, use those techniques themselves and go out, you know, if they so choose to go out and, and improve their climbing. Um, but almost immediately after the book was published, people began to contact us through Steve's, uh, stevehouse.net website and say, hey, would you help me with my training? And, and so we- Do you have a training plan? Yeah. yeah, lots of questions like that. And then it began to, the momentum began to build and, and we thought, oh my gosh, we, maybe we've done something here. And so we sort of had for, I don't know, a year or so, we'd had kind of a little hobby business for the two of us. You know, we we didn't even have a website. We just used the stevehouse.net and we um, began to coach a couple people, but it was, it was pretty darn tiny. And um, I'm not sure exactly what, 
maybe it was just momentum over the, the, the first two couple of years, but certainly by, you know, I would say, what, 2016, the momentum was, it, it was, we all of a sudden realized, oh my gosh, this is no longer a hobby. Um, it began to consume our lives. And uh, we started hiring other coaches because we couldn't have. Well, first came the website, though. Yeah, that's true. So that was, uh, that was the first step is because uh, for the variety of reasons, um, let me just step back. So I want to emphasize a point that Scott made that, you know, we really intended for people to be able to buy this uh, book. It was originally supposed to be $30. And then when it was 464 pages, it had to be $35 and, and do their own coaching. We, we really intended it to be a, a manual for people to be able to self coach. Um, so, and, but we found out that, uh, for a variety of reasons, people didn't want to do that. And they wanted, some people were able to do that and other people didn't, just didn't want to do that. They wanted either a training plan, blueprint type thing to follow, or they wanted uh, actual coaching. And so we sort of developed um, a, a number of offerings uh, from training plans for a variety of sports, starting with mountaineering and including eventually rock climbing and, and, and mountain running and ski mountaineering and ski mountaineering racing. Um, and then uh, people wanted, um, we had a custom kind of training plan that was a little more customized. And then we had a regular coaching, like you get a, a workout every day, you have contact with the coach every day, you get feedback on every workout. You can call them anytime and say, Hey, I don't feel feeling a little sick. What should I do? Or, all those things like real, co real legitimate coaching. And now with the, with the tools these days, of course, made made all that possible. And so we really wanted to be able to have something where people could do it. We wanted to augment the side of the, we wanted to augment the, the empower the do it yourselfers. And so we started this website to actually just house the frequently asked questions because we kept we kept getting these same emails same questions and we thought okay well we just need to write an article about this particular question whether it was you know how do i determine my aerobic threshold so i know what my training zones are so we started writing articles we started putting them on the website we we launched um with like you know i think we had 10 or 12 articles i think we have we, we've surpassed 300 articles now and it's always been our philosophy to make those entirely free and our tagline is free pro proven training knowledge um we really want to be um and we want people to to understand that our goal is to to help you help people um we're not like Scott said, we didn't set out to start a business. We're not here to get rich or make money. Um, it became that we had to make money because we were spending all our time doing that. And it was either start making this, uh, this business pay us or, or retire from our other, or, or, or not do it and go do our normal, our original jobs. But there was so much enthusiasm from this community and it was just filling our hearts, frankly, with, uh, you know, that, that people were getting so much out of these, out of this information and out of these programs, whether it was a plan or coaching that, you know, we've kind of ended up going, going all in. And from the website, you know, about a year later, we hired our, our first coach with, who was Sam Naney. And that was probably 2017, I think. Yeah, I think it was. Sam's been with us about that long. And now we're up to, I, I've lost count, but I'm sure we have, I think we 13. have 13 coaches. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky 13. Yep. 
Um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it, it has become more than a full-time job as anybody who runs their own business can, <laughs> will under, very much understand. Yeah, it has a, yeah. has a way of getting uh, out of control sometimes. Um, you end up wearing, having to wear a lot of hats. Um, and yeah. I, I want to add one thing to, I probably should have, we probably should have said this a little earlier, Steve, is that we didn't invent any of this stuff. I think it's really important. You know, we're not, there's nothing we, the reason we're so open and free with what we've done and what we're all, what we offer, you know, in terms of you know, basically all, everything that's in our heads is in our books and on the website. Or, and, and we're trying to, you know, and that's one of the benefits of the website. It allows us to expand on some of those ideas. And now with these podcasts, we can do deep dives into some subjects like, like we've done. But the reason we're so free with all that stuff is that it was given to us freely. And we, because yeah, we didn't absolutely. invent any of this stuff, all we did was crib from existing sports and say, how did they do that? You know, why is it that those guys can run so fast for so long and, or you know, whatever it is. And what we, what we discovered was that the, the principles that govern endurance, conventional sport endurance training is essentially the same as what, what we do, what we're doing for alpinism and, and mountaineering um, and, and mountain running and mountain skiing, all that sort of thing. So I, I think it's really important that people realize that it's not like we have some secret sauce here that we, we are you know, holding close to our chest and that you can only get it. In fact, a... we, we often say that if somebody tells you they have some secret sauce to just run away, because yeah. <laughs> this is all very, very well understood, very well established. People have been working on this for well over 100 years trying to figure this out. And the same principles that guide the training of a Tour de France rider uh, guide the, the training of a, of a mountaineer. So um, this, is, this, is, this is real uh, basic stuff. And a lot of times it comes down to some very basic uh, principles. I mean, some of the ones we talk about are, you know, we have our, our triumvirate, I would say, the, the continuity, gradualness, and modulation, meaning continuity means training every day. Gradualness means the gradual increase of, of uh, training load. Modulation means the, the, the modulation itself of that training load, that you have harder weeks and, and then you have recovery weeks and harder days and easier days and all those things. And um, some people maybe call that polarized training or those sorts of things. But all, all these the people love to confuse you with the terminology. Uh, they love to try to tell you that they have something uh, secret. They love to tell you that they're going to bomb proof you and injury proof you and i don't know you toss all these fancy terms around that sound really cool and uh put all these wild graphics on it and and package it up to sell you but um you know we're really not selling anything because we've made it all free and then for the people who want it spoon-fed and want it super convenient you know they can hire a coach and the coach can write your out workout for tomorrow and the people who want to work on it a little bit and be self-starters, uh, there's training plans. Are training plans the, the, the perfect thing? Um, you know, no, there's, as we talked about often, training plans are by nature one size fits all. And they're, you know, going to be just like one size fits all hats. They're, some people are going to fit and some people they're not. Um, but we do our best to, uh, to hit, to, uh, hit the, the middle of the, of the bell curve with those. Um, but anyway, I th I'm, I'm kind of going, going uh, down a, a rabbit hole here, but I think that that's a really important thing. And, and I want people to understand that, uh, 
if, if people know anything about Uphill Athlete, that it's an open platform for sharing our knowledge and, and not just our knowledge, the knowledge of, of our whole team, our whole coaching team. We bring in other experts like uh, high altitude doctors and dietitians and all kinds of other, other people, physical therapists to, uh, to also contribute to this. Yeah, and Matt, I want to go back quickly to what you were saying about um, training plans. And, I, and you know, one of the biggest problems with anyone's training plan, it doesn't matter who it is that writes it, is that the athlete may become what I call a slave to that program. In other words, if it says you're doing such and such on Wednesday, will you go do that such and such on Wednesday, regardless of whether you're prepared for it and, and ready to absorb that type of training? But the difference between what we're trying to do with our, what we call our stock training plans, we've tried to categorize them to sort of narrow down the, the, the goals that they're targeting, but is that we've written these two books and we've got all this information on the website that hopefully the combination of this training plan that, as Steve said, very, very truly is a one size fits all. It may not fit you that well, but if you take the time to read the books and do some studying on the website, ask questions on the forum, um, get on the phone with me or Steve or somebody, you will be able to make, take that, that stock plan and tweak it and adjust it that, so that it suits you better. So you're not just buying a training plan from us and then being you know, tossed, you know, thrown out and you know, go, go for it. That's all there is. It's, there's nothing here. So we have this support because as Steve said, we're, we really truly are trying to disseminate what we have learned, which I think is a pretty darn correct way. I mean, it may not be the only way to train, but it's certainly one that has worked for now. Now, literally thousands of people have seen great success with this. Um, and well, and actually millions of people, because we didn't, as you said, we didn't yeah. invent anything new. We just adapted, yeah. you know, conventional training knowledge to uh, non-conventional sports or sports that most of our sports that we cover actually don't really have competitions with the exception of trail running and ski mountaineering. Um, but even within those sports, most trail runners and most ski mountaineers, I'd say 90 plus percent of them never enter a race. You know, I've been ski, we've both been ski touring our whole lives. And, you know, I have done whatever, two ski mountaineering races or something, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's competition and winning is, is not what this is about. This whole thing is really about ultimately, and this is, you know, goes back to the perspective we try to encourage people, this is about taking along you and, and working on your own self-improvement. And um, I think that that would be another really interesting discussion to, for us to have together, because I know that we both share some, some history um, and some background in terms of how, uh, how our training and our sports, and they, they really help us a lot in our everyday lives. Um, and uh, that's a, that's a, that's a it's, it's more than just sport. It's, it's a way of life. And that's, that's really what we're trying to, trying to help people see. Um, and it's something that becomes a, becomes a habit. It becomes health. It becomes fitness. It becomes fun. It becomes your community. And yeah. it becomes your life. And I think that that's a, a really important uh, way to look at what we're doing here. For sure. For sure. And, and in this growth process, which we've been 
kind of struggling to, to keep up with, thanks to all of you out there in the audience for being such great supporters of what we're doing. Um, it's very rewarding for us to know that there's, there's that much interest in this stuff um, and that we are, seem to be anyway, fitting, you know, filling a, a need, which is great. That's what we wanted to do. Um, but we've been super lucky during the, the growth of this to have a fairly, through our own tight knit group of acquaintances, you know, either um, fellow climbers, um, some, several athletes that I've coached in the past, to have a really excellent pool of talent to draw from, to, to bring on as coaching staff, you know, folks who they basically already were indoctrinated into the uphill athlete training philosophy. In some cases, they were instrumental in developing that philosophy. I would say that certainly Sam and Maya and you were all, you know, you were guinea pigs. All guinea pigs. <laughs> to develop some of these ideas. Um, Luckily, none of you died in the testing process. No guinea pigs no. were harmed in this. We all thrived. Testing. No guinea pigs were harmed. No. Um, we might have suffered a little bit, but only in the good way. <laughs> and so we've, we've been super fortunate to have this uh, extremely high quality people around us now that, to help us with this project because there's no way that Steve and I could be doing this on our own at this point. Um, we're, you know, we've, we've had to take a bit of a step back from the coaching roles. You know, we're still trying to, we still stay involved with a few athletes, but really our time is now more spent on, you know, doing things like this or, uh, you know, dealing with, you know, in fact, some things that are a little less sexy than podcasts, you know, some more mundane chores that have to get done in every business, but they need to get done. And that's kind of, this has freed us up to do some of those, that type of work. The fact that we have such um, great folks that, that we, we can rely on. Yeah, I think it's uh, we should we should wrap this up. And in in terms of the summary that I think of when I think about this conversation, you know how our relationship has evolved now over the last whatever it's been twenty three years um, from you know you know just being climbing partners and friends to to uh, you know you you respectively respectfully watching me self-destruct <laughs> as, as, as I was getting my first, going through my first kind of coaching experience with someone who wasn't a climber or mountaineer to, to actually stepping in and being my coach to, you know, we didn't talk about this, but to going to Tibet with me for an 8,000 meter peak um, yeah. where we actually went on an expedition and climbed Choyu. And um, that was 2001. Um, because that's, yeah. And, uh, all, you know, all the way through, you know, all those successes I had in those, uh, through those early two thousands, uh, whether it was climbing K7 or climbing Nanga Parbat or Kunyang Chish or all these, uh, other, other things, um, both the, both the successes and the grand failures were all, all kind of due to, you know, being able to be fit enough to get up every day, day after day, week after week. And, you know, uh, climb again and, and keep and, and put that perseverance that I'm so good at to, to attack to the test. Yeah. Um, so I think that the, the, the physical strength enabled me to test my mental strength. Actually. Um, I think uh, everyone, everyone is in some different balance there and now being able to share that with the world, whether it's for free on the site for $35 in a book or, 
for uh, with a coach every uh, every day you and I both coach athletes and then we have all our great coaches that, that have come up with us to to support all the athletes um you know we have a, a lot of athletes now out there every day and we have a we have a Strava club we have the Facebook group we have you know a, tens of thousands of, of newsletter subscribers that want to hear what we're talking about every week. And uh, it's, it's been an amazing, amazing journey. And I just want the audience and the listeners to know that this is all for you guys because uh, it fulfills us in the sense that we are, um, we're honored to be able to contribute something to our community. And uh, it feels really good to do that. And uh, we appreciate the opportunity but you, the community, is actually what makes it uh, not only makes the opportunity, but makes it worthwhile um, by, through your participation. They're hearing through from all of you on the, whether it's a forum questions or, or feedback or your comments or however we, we interact. I, I actually meet people. I wear my uphill athlete hat everywhere. And so, you know, <laughs> I actually, you know, meet so people will, will recognize that sometimes and uh and i say actually that's you know i'm i'm like steve house the co-founder <laughs> of this company oh really oh wow cool we love that website you know it's great we love we love that uh, aspect of it so thanks to all of you for for making that come to life and that's something that uh I don't think either of us truly really understand, <laughs> certainly yeah. never expected, and, uh, but are I could certainly uh, truly, truly grateful for it. I couldn't have said it better. And, and, and thank you, partner, for all yeah, these years. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. yeah. So, well, we're, we're still going. Yeah. So let's, let's keep okay. it up. Well, and uh, thanks to everyone who listened today and look for more of, of these episodes. Please feel free to to comment, uh, to, to give us a, a rating on uh, your favorite podcast platform. Give us, I, I hopefully, five stars. <laughs> and uh, and uh, sign up for our newsletter at uphillathlete.com. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.